When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Taking Care of Lady Business, where we put the business back in lady business. Hosted by Jennifer Justice, founder and CEO of the Justice Department, a management strategy and law firm that works with female and woke male entrepreneurs, executives, talent, brands, and creatives to build and maximize their wealth, focusing in the areas of tech, consumer product, finance, media, entertainment, and fashion. Jennifer interviews entrepreneurial women who have done it all, who will be sharing their secrets on all things business, especially as a woman. These highly successful women will share strategies and insights, including what not to do and what it takes to win. And now, here's your host, Jennifer Justice. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Taking Care of Lady Business, putting the business back into our lady business. Today, we have Suchi Reddy. Suchi is a, an artist and an architect and founder of Ready Made. Hi, Suchi. How are you? Hi, Jennifer. I'm good. How are you? So yeah. nice to be here. I know. It's great. I'm so happy. I mean, I haven't seen you in so long, so it's good to at least <laughs> Case, right. So tell us a little bit. I mean, I wanted to have you on here for obvious reasons. You're a trailblazer in the field of architecture. Very few women in it, obviously, and very few women with their own firms. And so, you know, and it's such an amazing space to be in, you know, if you live in New York City and just walk around and see all the different kinds of architecture. But in general, you know, I just think it'd be, I think everyone listening is going to be fascinated by your story. So let's get into it. And I want to first hear about what ReadyMade is and how long you've been doing it when you started it. Great. Um, ReadyMade is an architecture and design firm, primarily. We do all kinds of things. People always ask, you know, it's a typical question once you say an architect is like, oh, what kind of architecture do you, what's your style? You know, what I will say is that we do all kinds of things um, from ground up houses to buildings to um, art installations, um, which has, you know, responded an artistic practice over the last 10 years and interiors. Um, I really am a design omnivore. And when people ask me, what is your style? I say, well, I'm really, you know, I've come to the conclusion that what I am is a, is a modernist, but more importantly, I'm a serenist. What I like to do is make things serene as much as I can, anywhere I can, because I believe in the value of that for us as humans. So take us through, well, that's amazing. Uh, I think, especially now everyone wants serene, right? It's like, that's what you really need. Yeah. Oh, um, and I forgot to say, I've been doing it for 20 years. This is yeah. the 20th year of ready-made. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Yeah, Thank you. Well, I mean, I'm glad that you said that because the next question is like, take us like how you got to the, like, why did you start your own? So how did you start out? Where, where were you before? So I was, it might not be apparent from my voice, so I will say it. Um, I was born and raised in India. Uh, I came to this country when I was 18 years old. And, you know, I always wanted to be an architect because at the age of 10, I had the amazing experience of growing up in a house where my father actually hired his friend who was an architect to design it. And in those days, that wasn't a thing you did. You know, it was mostly just builders and they built whatever fit in the space. And, and I remember having this 
distinct epiphany when I was about 10 years old, um, that my house was changing me, that it was making me the person that I was. So I had this like reaction to space, really feeling like it's changing who I am. And that led me to be an architect. And when I came to this country, uh, you know, as a young immigrant, woman of color, no connections, no nothing, no kind of guidance as to which schools to go to or what to do if you really wanted to be a successful architect. Nobody gave me any kind of a roadmap. You know, there were lots of obstacles. Um, I was also married at a really young age and it was, you know, more like, who's going to have the babies? You know, those kinds of <laughs> important questions. But, right. yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah you know, questions that didn't quite fit with my life plan at the moment, you know. So anyway, uh, 20 years later, here I am in New York City. Um, I moved to New York after working for lots of different architects um, in 1997, been here since then. And I was working for other architects. And I remember when 9-11 happened, um, you know, I had to actually go to a job site and like, you know, I saw the whole thing. I had to clear the guys from the site. And I took time to really think about whether what I wanted to do in this world was be an architect. And I came back to this idea that this is my skill. This is how I make the world a better place. And this is what I need to do. And eventually that morphed, you know, very organically. I didn't have a business plan. I didn't think I was going to have my own shop. I was perfectly happy working at the firm I was working at. Um, They're still my mentors. They're amazing people. But uh, something happened, you know, there was a downsizing that had to happen. And I the same day I got a call from someone that said, will you design a house for us? And I said, okay. And that's how I started my firm 20 years ago. Oh, wait. So the same day, so you're having this epiphany that you need to be free, like not work for other people. They also were like September 11th happened. The economy is crashing. We need to downsize. So we're going to let you go. And somebody Called the same day. Called the same day. day. So like yeah. you, they say like things happen in threes. Like that's like and that's pretty insane. But then you followed your intuition. Like instead of like working out of like scarcity or fear, you're like, I guess this is a sign, and I'm going to take this and move forward with yeah. it. I've always been that kind of person, you know, this is a sign person, you know, right. um, yeah. yeah, I had a very funny sign. Um, I was working in Wisconsin of all places and a friend of mine had, you know, before I moved to New York and a woman, a friend of mine had said, come over here, you know, this farm is really good and they'll teach you all these things and da, da, da. And I said, okay, I'll interview, we'll see. And then she took me to the Capitol and I get out of the car and I hear all this Indian music around me. I'm like, what? What's going on? You know, Indian music in the middle. It was, it turned out it was like the Indian Students Association, like day or something. So they were playing music somewhere that I heard. But for me, this was a sign. <laughs> I was like, yeah. oh, I'm meant to be here. Okay. Yeah. This is what I'll do. You know, um, but yes, following your intuition, uh, my intuition certainly has been the thing that um, has guided my practice through all of this time. That is a a real common theme on this podcast for all women that I interview. So from Taryn Toomey, who started the class, you know, her episode came out a few weeks ago to Jennifer Fisher came out yesterday, her jewelry, Mm -hmm. I'm wearing some like intuition, intuition, follow that. Don't listen to the haters, follow your intuition. No, but like along this way, are you getting, you know, support and people like, yeah, you should really do this. Or is it like, no, I will say that. No. I mean, uh, sorry to be so blunt about that, but I can't um, wash that in any way that, you know, sounds great. I will say that maybe over the last five years or so, it's been nice to be recognized for the work I'm doing, for to have people come up 
to me and say, well, I see that you have a particular skill also because I'm really interested in um, the way that spaces and atmospheres and buildings affect our bodies, you know, through um, the lens of neuroscience, through really looking at how our environments are actually not just passive containers, that they're really acting on us. And this goes back to my epiphany of when I was 10 years old, you know, and really connecting those dots through kind of a research-based bent to my practice. And people come to me now, but this idea of support and opportunity does not exist in the field of architecture. It really doesn't. Um, Working as an artist, I find it a little bit more than I do as an architect, which is a really interesting dichotomy, you know? Right. Um, But why do you think that is? Why do you think that is in architecture? Well, I think societally we have all these systemic setups that really need to shift, you know, because when you look at the number, I think the number of women architects is something like 2%, it might be 4% now, and the number of women of color is maybe 0.2 in the profession. Right. And it, it is actually a very difficult profession for women. We do have, like, we see a drop-off. Um, when you look at the data, you can really see that when it's a very time-consuming profession. People don't believe that it's ever a 40-hour week job, you know, it's quite intense. So when women have children, and they have to be present for their young ones, much more than you know, they would at other times in their life, we do see a drop off in the profession, it's quite difficult for people to manage, you know, everything that said, there are amazing women who do that who work who teach who fit it all in, and you know, somehow rise to the occasion, but it's a very difficult thing to balance. And societally, we don't have the support for that. And then secondly, in terms of opportunities, the way that architectural projects come about in this country is very different than it is in, say, Europe, for instance, where a public project is open to a lot of people. Right. And you do have to have the credentials and you have to kind of build them. But you do, if you're a newbie with a great idea, there is the possibility that you might actually make it. That happens much more there than here, you know, so... Those are the kinds of things I think that really affect those numbers. Why is it so demanding on a time? <laughs> it's hard to, it's really hard to explain that to anybody who doesn't do it, because the problem is that if you imagine you're working on a building or, or something, you know, we create these sets of drawings that are hundreds of pages. Let's say you want to change a window here, one thing, right? That changes things on those hundreds of pages. It right. might change other things. And even though we now have technology that can track that, you know, there's also, it's not just a functional business, right? It's an artistic practice. Right. So we're melding art, we're melding function, we're melding science, we're melding engineering. It's very complex. And I think architects have actually done themselves a huge disservice by downplaying both the complexity of what we do, the enormous kind of professional responsibility that we carry for life safety and all these other things. Yeah, yeah. You know, getting licensed and maintaining your license and the kind of insurance that you have to carry in order to be able to do the work, because we also live in a litigious culture and we have to be careful. Mm -hmm. And there are so many things And then, you know, as an architect, when you go to someone and you say, here's my feed, they say, what? I can go build that myself, you know, because they think I live in space all the time. Why can't I do it? Um, You might, but you won't have the kind of thing that you would have if you went to a professional, you know? So I I do that. I'll get on my soapbox a little bit because I think as a profession, we really have done ourselves a disservice. I think the other professions, you know, people like nobody would think of going to a, a doctor or a lawyer and say, well, why don't you show me if it works and then I'll pay you? 
you know, yeah. or give me an idea and then I'll pay you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Nobody yeah. says that. You go to a doctor and you pay. Well, them. I don't know. As a lawyer, I can tell you that. People, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Actually, I was having this conversation with a friend saying maybe that doesn't work for lawyers. <laughs> you know, yeah. maybe they're somewhat in the same position as, yeah. as, as architects. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But it is a, it's a very complex thing. And I think truly it's one of my, um, hopes that we regain our our place as the poets of culture and that there's an important place for poetry in our culture in space and that it affects people really 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 deeply and it's important more from a perspective of equity of how you can offer people spaces from which they can be their best and be their best selves and this is something that everyone deserves that until as a culture we really come up to that um, understanding I don't think we'll go anywhere. And the pandemic, you know, has made that come home. Oh, well, I know, I know, right? So I want to talk a little bit more about that. Even, you know, like everybody, like I was in my apartment, you know, I had to work. I had a two-bedroom of, you know, mm-hmm. kids, twins, as you know. Yeah. And working in that, you know, and not having like my windows, you know, it's an old building, didn't really open that well. It was just like so claustrophobic, you know, and I'm like in fortunate like situations. So, yeah. you know, talk about the research and data and everything about that. That's it's so interesting. And there is a ton of research and data being done about that, you know, even about, you know, rates of loneliness that increased, you know, I think one of the first webinars that I did um, when the pandemic started, you know, we didn't know if the world was ending or what we were doing with ourselves, you know, um, that it was so poignant, Jennifer, I can't even tell you how much it touched me. There was somebody who um, was suffering from depression and they were like, what do I do? What do I do? You know, I don't have my, my usual support systems. You know, I can't go and see people. There's nothing. And all I could say was like, try to be creative within your space. Try to use the act of making something to bring that, you know, bring something green in, like the things that you could do for yourself. But scientifically speaking, there are things that um, people are studying. And there is a field called neuroaesthetics that um, I'm engaged in. That's a fairly new field in science. It's about 15 or 20 years old. And it's a bridge between neuroscientists and artistic communities, you know, really looking at how the science and the arts can come together to really understand how we function as humans, you know, because this kind of separation of us as bodies and beings doesn't make any sense. When you think of an animal, you don't separate it from its habitat. Like how would you see a spider out of its web? We're that enmeshed in our environment, but we don't respect it that much. You know, we don't think that it gives us back as much or that it's made for us. I also see it just particularly like when I make a space for somebody and I've had the pleasure of seeing kids grow up in the houses that I've done, you know, I have long relationships with clients. I have lots of repeat clients and it's so wonderful to see how they've reacted to the space, what it's given them, you know, how they felt supported in having something that was made for them. Mm -hmm. There's even that, you know, just a simple thing of having something that's made for you, that actually responds to you. And that's why the sculpture in DC that you went to see, and thank you so much for going and taking the kids. Um, when I ask people to speak a word for their future into the into the sculpture, they take a minute to think about it. Like, what's that word? And for me, that's the work. Mm-hmm. I want to bring about self-awareness, you know, for people to have a minute to think, to understand their own role, their own agency, 
And really when then they speak in and then they get their own like emotional, like light mandala and that all those lights become part of a collective mandala that's always changing to also understand the power we have to affect everybody else around us just by everything we do, even the power of voice. Yeah. I mean, that is such an interesting analogy of the spider and the web, you know, and it's also like, why do people prefer Los Angeles over New York or New York over Los Angeles? You know, it's like, yeah, you're right. And there's so much, but we don't really think about it. And so how is it then when you're building things, you know, for a mass amount of lower income people, like, you know, how that affects them? That's what you were kind of getting at, I think, a little bit earlier, too. Yes. Obviously, when you're not designing for a single person and you're designing for a lot of people, you have to make some assumptions for things that, and we're all unique beings. You know, we really all are on this planet. And if we can respect that and kind of start from that place and really give people, even within a design that has to be calibrated to a certain kind of mean set of requirements, you can give people places to express themselves, ways in which they express themselves, ways in which they feel that they engage with it in their own unique way. And that agency, that power has a lot to do with how they experience space. So I'm really thinking about how people experience architecture, not just from I went in here and it worked for me and it's this big and this fits and that does, but how it's actually making them feel their own engagement with it. And that's a bigger spectrum of things. So I just um, I taught at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign as a distinguished professor a few years ago. And part of that uh, professorship was the fact that the university publishes books. So I just had this come out called Form Follows Feeling. And, you know, everyone's like, what? Because in architecture, form follows function is a very well-known adage. You know, it's very famous and expressed by a very famous and amazing architect. And But this idea that for me, it's all about shifting the compass, you know, really looking at where you, it's important that the compass points true north Mm -hmm. in order for us to get somewhere. So how do we like recalibrate for where we are as a culture? Who are we, you know, are we, you know, greenwashing, are we pinkwashing? What are we doing, you know, to really think about that and to align ourselves? And then maybe we can do the right thing. Um, form follows feelings. No, it's, I mean, it's super interesting and it's like a great way to think about, you know, yeah, as a culture, how we grow as a culture and thinking about our relation to all of it is I mean, I don't think a lot of people are thinking about, so it's pretty amazing. No, and and it's a very simple, basic thing. You know, we build our worlds outside of our bodies. It's also why I think fashion is important. You know, it's like you start with your body, then you build your next layer and your next layer and your next layer as you're interacting with the world, the quality of all of those things and how they fit you and how they support you. It's like basic, right? When you think about it, it's like, well, that's not working for you. How are you doing what you need to be doing? So moving on to your, what you had referenced earlier too, is um, your sculpture in DC. And I um, just had, you know, the fortune to be down there and see it with my kids over the last three day weekend. And, and it was like, it's right in the middle. It is the anchor piece or anchor sculpture in the arts and industries building. So how did that come about? How was that? And when, why, and tell us everything about that. Well, um, I was, uh, I had the good fortune to meet an amazing woman who you must have on your, on your podcast is Zolda Brillmeyer. Um, she's oh, now, the, Zolda. Yeah. you know, Zolda, yeah. Yeah, so course. I met Zolda. Zolda and I were on a jury for something once and we were 
um, you know, I was so impressed with her way of thinking. And she reached out to me and said, I'm curating this thing, but you literally said, would you throw your hat in the ring to think about this? Because you do installations, you're an architect, but you're also an artist. Would you be interested in thinking about humans and technology? And I said, absolutely. It's something that's always in the back of my head. So that's how it happened. So I um, put in a proposal and I was chosen um, through a a process with uh, all of the people involved at the museum with uh, AWS, who's uh, Amazon Web Services, who's the major supporter of both the sculpture and I think the the show called Futures, Mm -hmm. um, which is an amazing show that talks about. I didn't even like art, like those kinds of museums, you know, are really amazing, just for, yeah. especially for kids, you know, to be like, oh, this is the future. And they're like, oh, right. you know, we already, they already see it. You know, we're like, yeah. Oh. yeah. Yeah. And it's so important. The value of those things, I think, are really what they do for these young kids. Like, if you, I think there's data actually on how the World Fair, World's Fairs affected children of their time and what those children have gone on to do. It's a really interesting thing. Because it's a very important thing to be able to show children possibilities. Yeah, and if they go yeah. in there and they see, you know, a sculpture full of light and sound and, you know, that's listening to them and responding to them, or they go and see a flying car, you know, their idea of what the world is and what the world contains in it is very different than before they walked in those doors. Right. So, right, and that's right. the power of it, you know, for yeah, me, that's the power. Them, yeah. yeah. And a lot of those museums are what happened in the past. Right. Yeah. And so instead yeah. this is like looking forward and like, yeah. So how did you come up with the idea? So talk oh, a little um, about it for people who haven't been there for people and, you know, so they can go see it. So you, you can give more insight. Into sure. It. So the sculpture is called me plus you. And um, I came up with it because as all of my work does, I think about usually these themes of individual agency and collective responsibility. That's really how I see us as functioning within our communities. And so I've always been fascinated with sound. Um, I looked at this and being an architect, I looked at the space and this is amazing rotunda with all this light coming down. And I was like, oh, this has to be a light sculpture, you know? So how am I going to take this idea of voice and of people's voice? Because I really felt that in technology, what was important is our own self-awareness and our, our engagement with it. And that's why I knew it had to be something that was me plus you, you know, it wasn't just going to be, oh, technology is taking over my world or it drives everything. It's not a thing, you know, you get to actually drive this and you're the one creating these things. So it depends on you. And that's really what I wanted to, you know, show. So then it became this idea of how do you work with technology? How do you find artificial intelligence and machine learning to understand people's emotions? Because I also have, so usually when I work on something, all these themes that I I'm interested in from childhood to now will come together somehow, you know, so whether it's like sound or agency or, you know, how do I, you know, work with technology or space or emotion, you know, I was like, this has to be an emotional sculpture. How am I going to make it about emotion? You know, and I was looking at the particular aspects of machine learning that, um, allow you to understand emotion. So what happens in the sculpture, as you know, is you walk up to it and it's a big light cloud with like a central vertical piece that has a kind of a light totem moving in it. And people are requested to go up and speak into these clusters of lights that I call mandalas and give them, give it a word for their future. And it reads your voice, your emotion, and understands what that is and classifies it through machine learning. And over that, I worked with another graphic coding team. So we made all of the lights respond to you in kind of this light pattern 
that's specifically yours. So it's never repeated. It's always, even if you say the word again in a different kind of tone, you'll get a different um, configuration. And all of those lights then give you back your own reaction. So it's really reflecting you to you right. and then taking, you know, your colors and making them part of everyone's colors. And so a follow-up project is really at some point kind of slicing the colors in the central totem where everyone's colors come together to really see kind of create like an emotional lunar calendar to see where we're feeling happy, where we're feeling sad. And of course I did um, a digital sculpture as well. So you can access this on the web. There's a, there's a website called meplusyoufuture.com. And if you go on there, you can play with it and you'll see that you can enter words and get your mandalas. You can save them to Instagram. You can, you know, do all of that. So that's, yeah, that's how that came about and what it is. Everyone, when they go to DC, go there. And what's great is it's open, that museum's open later than most of them. Is it? And the show is on through July 6th of this oh, year. Awesome. So there's a little right. time. Yeah. yeah. So you have some time. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about your 20 year anniversary. And you've been doing this now for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Obviously, when somebody's been doing something that long in a company, being, you know, a renegade, a, like a woman and a woman of color and, you know, a field that has 0.2, right, percent of women mm-hmm. of color. Um, you, there's a lot, I'm sure, that you've learned in this and things that you may have done differently. Are there things that you can share with the audience about, you know, your progression here and evolution and, you know, that what, things that you did right, things that you did wrong? Uh, sure. You know, it's a, turning 20 is a real milestone. And it's actually been nice because um, I don't know if you've been there, but we also designed Google's first flagship retail store. It's in Chelsea. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's on the ground floor of their building, you know, so to finally after, I mean, architects are late bloomers anyway, mostly, um, generally people don't, you know, come into their own until they're in their sixties, but that's changing mostly for men, but it is changing. (laughs) Um, thank God. No, I, I'm, it's, I'm serious. It's changing because there's a young woman who has now been, um, nominated to work on an expansion to the Met, which I was so happy to hear. I was like, oh my God, finally we're doing it, you know, but when you learn these, when you have lasted so long, the one thing I will say is that diversity has been key to my success. I never thought about it. It wasn't a business strategy, really. Mm-hmm. But my work has always taken me, my um, mantra was nice people and nice projects. So then I took on what I thought were nice people and nice projects. And so it didn't matter to me what they were. If it was a house, it was a building, it was a fabric, it was ground up, it was not, didn't matter. And the diversity of that actually has helped us really weather all the recessions and everything, because if one sector of things was not working, there was another that was, you know? And so if it wasn't architecture, it was going to be interiors. And if it wasn't high-end interiors, it was going to be objects and fabric, you know, uh, furniture and things like that. So there was always things that kind of kept us going. The other thing was to really modulate growth. You know, I've slowly added people. We're getting up to 20 people over 20 years and it's, it's a slow process. You know, I think there is really this kind of um, tendency to think, and and it works in other industries where you can have venture capital, but not so much in artistic practice, you know, where you kind of have to grow it slowly. And I like to keep my, um, be involved in the sense of the work, which means the details as well. So my team is absolutely amazing. I could never do any of the stuff that I do if I didn't have such amazing people working with me. But 
you lose that kind of touch the larger something gets, you know? So I'm really thinking about like the quality of what you do versus the quantity of what you do. Yeah. So the challenge really is for to get innovative clients who are interested in doing something really amazing and who want to support you with that. Right. You know, and that's, that's what I'm looking for and now. Follow your intuition. Indeed. Follow your intuition. Never give up. That's another one. Yeah, you just yeah, can't, yeah. No, you know, you just have to keep going. Option, right? No, <laughs> not, not really. Option. Well, let's talk about some of the things. So you did the Google store. What else have you done? So people can understand like your breadth of work. Um, that people can see most of the other work is private. That's what makes it um, a little bit harder. These are the more public things that people can access. Uh, I did do a sculpture in Times Square three years ago that a lot of people saw. Oh, it was yeah, about yeah, love yeah. and justice. Yeah. yeah. Um, I also did a big installation in Prospect Park a while ago that covered two and a half acres with um, uh, yellow pinwheels. So yeah, more of the, the artistic works are the more public ones. Um, right. The architectural ones have tended to be more for private clients yet. Yeah. I'm still waiting to get my public architectural commissions okay. <laughs> 20 years in. <laughs> and you'll do it globally, yes? Yes, anywhere. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah we um, do work um, in other places right now. And all over the country. We're in Florida, California, Rhode Island. Where else are we right now? Baltimore. Oh, one of the really interesting things we're doing, which has to do with also the um, interest in in, uh, neurosciences, we're building a resilience center for the staff at Johns Hopkins. So it's a wonderful project to be involved in um, to help um, relieve uh, the stress of healthcare workers, which we all know has been so intense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can imagine how important that space to feel serene would be. Yeah. 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 That, I mean, that is, that's amazing work. And I, and I don't, yeah, I don't think that people really think about it. I know I'm so affected by space. I still think about this house that I rented two summers um, in Amagansett and it Mm -hmm. was not the nicest house, but it was like one of those upside down ones. And you walked up and it was basically in the dunes and the light always just was like, the second I got there, I was like, this is amazing. And yeah. you felt like at yeah, you feel it in your body. You can feel it yeah. in your body for sure. Yeah. 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 I love yeah. that. But like, thank you for bringing it all to the forefront and know that there is an actual science behind it. And we need as a culture to really like think about our relation to the environment yeah. again, and like to a spider it. to its web. Yeah. And yeah. to support innovation, really yeah. support innovation, support people who are thinking outside the box. We're not going to. Nothing's going to change if you don't do that. Um, yeah, you're right. Thank you so much. So um, I know that you have many more important things to do today, so I will let you go. But the one thing I always ask everyone at the end is what is the worst advice you ever received? Oh, golly. I think the worst advice I ever got was something somebody who said to me when I was having a, a rather a difficult time politically uh, in uh, some kind of a corporate situation was uh, put up with it. I, was, I think that was the worst advice I ever got. I don't think no. you should put up with it. No, no. I think putting up with it has got us to the place that we, you know, we are today. And then there's a big yeah. backlash in me too. It's like putting up with it and mm-hmm. dealing with it. And, oh, you know, boys will be boys and all of that stuff is exactly why nope. we're having a don't massive backlash. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this was great. Thank you so much. If people Thank want to find you, me. hire you, find out more about you, how can they do that? 
they can reach out to us at our website. Um, you can Google reddymade.com or uh, rmdny.com, actually. <laughs> I don't even know my own website properly. Uh, or on Instagram at readymade design, reddymade design. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this informative and amazing episode from Suchi Ready at ReadyMade. Um, let us know what else you want to hear, listen to, like, etc. cetera. Um, until next time, I'm Jennifer Justice. <laughs>